how, ma how many hundred millions are trying to be good at this? This is an extremely competitive industry, uh, which I think it ma makes it fascinating uh, to, for, for just to study human performance. Because if there are 300 millions who are waking up every day trying to thinking about how good they want to become at football, uh, and you study the top, you know, 50 individuals in this sport, you know that these people have something very special about them that, that made them successful. Geir Jura is a Norwegian professor who conducts cutting-edge research to understand what makes an elite performance in football. In this episode, we discuss his passion for football and creating exceptional research, what separates a great player from an average player, his frustration over England's penalty strategy, how top players can deal with inevitable setbacks, his collaboration with Arsenal Football Club, and the similarities between great football players and top managers. Let's start the show. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies, which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christophe Volnheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Welcome back, everyone. I'm super excited to be joined by Gade. And Gade, thank you so much for taking the time. Of course, my pleasure. You talk a lot about football and you are one of the leading experts on the field. Can you just tell us a bit about your upbringing and how you got a passion for football? It sounds a lot leading expert on the field. There are so many people in this field, <laughs> but I am definitely one that has gone very far in my particular little field within, within football, that's for sure. Um, so my upbringing, well, as uh, so many of my other friends back in the day, I wanted to become a football player. So, uh, so really up until the age of 18, life was about that. All I wanted to do was, was to play football and to play football at the highest level. Um, and uh, my passion for football probably grew uh, those, those, those early days. Now, what happened was that uh, life did not have that uh, uh, for me. Um, when I was 18, I did, in fact, uh, sign a professional contract with with a club, a decent Norwegian club, with my very first pre-season friendly training game, uh, I got an injury, and that was it. And I, and 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 then it was back to school instead, and, and focusing on my my studies. What type of injury? Uh, just just a muscle injury, uh, but but one that uh, kept me out from 
from uh, active football playing. Um, and so, of course, I mean, devastating at the time. This was a, this was a this was a massive trauma. Um, but but thinking back at that now, um, I'm, I'm not going to say I'm happy for the injury, but but in a way, I'm I'm pleased with what I made out of that because all the energy that at that point I put into football, wanting to become a player, now I just I suddenly needed another channel for it, and that channel was um, studying basically my books. I discovered psychology i discovered football science uh, and i spent literally twice as many hours focusing on my books as as my my stu student uh, buddies um and, and now looking back at it the the foundation that i laid then in those years uh i'm, I'm still uh i'm still basing a lot of the things that i do on that I mean, that's super interesting because it is a very common thing that when people lose football in their life, either they are professionally and then the career stops, etc. They need uh, a new way to channel that same energy and passion. And you found a new passion related to research and science. But just to just to understand, did that did that change come very quickly or did you have to find it in a couple of years after deciding that football is not going to be the, the journey for you? Yeah, good question. I mean, um, it, it's um, uh, all these things happened over probably like a couple of years. Um, so, so, so I quickly realized that I needed to focus on something, uh, and I needed to to put my my interests into something. And then it evolved a little bit exactly how I did that. So I had I had three four years. When I basically when I did my bachelor's degree and all those things, where I, I I slowly kind of emerged that I wanted to do football, sport, psychology, something in that intersection. But exactly what I struggled with a little bit. So, for example, I, I mean, I I was crazy back in that day because I, I took on so much, which which always probably has been the case with me. Um, and I was eating over much more than I could could chew. <laughs> Um, so there was one point when I was done with my bachelor that I, I couldn't decide what topic that I wanted to write my master's uh, thesis on. So I had two topics. It was one relating more into football, perception, vision, awareness, these types of things. And the other one was more into the philosophical area, still philosophy of sport, but more related to consulting, counseling players and so forth. I couldn't decide. So basically, I ended up going to the to the rector at my school, and I asked, "Is it possible to write two? Can I just do two master theses in parallel?" And what's funny is that he said, um, hmm, "No one has done that before. Sounds great, but you need to talk to the CEO of the university first because this is so special." So I went to him, and he said, hmm, "No one has done this before. Impossible. You cannot do that." So basically, that was a no, <laughs> and I had to choose. Um, so, so, so questions like that I had at the time. And it, uh, but after, like, when when I ended up on, on doing that, then then I, I got more clear about what I wanted to do. Just just a quick and I guess simple question to answer, but I just want to to highlight it: the importance of going abroad and learning from the best places in the world. I mean, we have a Danish guy famous for that, Rasmus Ankersen, who wrote the Goldmine Effect. Like if you were researching skiing, it would be natural to stay in Norway and just be in Norway. But I mean, football, you sort of 
have to go out and explore what are the best guys doing at all times. Can you just highlight that importance of going abroad and, and yeah, doing it the, the proper way? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's a very good point. Um, yeah, if, if you stay in Norway studying football, <laughs> you're, you're going to be really, really knowledgeable about the second best <laughs> what they are doing. Uh, so football is obviously so global and there's so many big communities outside the, 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 the culture. So, so for me, the, the international focus of what I've done has been um, very present from, from early years. So, so it started with, um, basically, I started going to conferences. So, so conferences in my field, sports psychology conferences. I started presenting at these conferences. I didn't really have that much substantial to present, but I wanted to just be very active uh, at, at doing that. So, so very early, I, I did that. Uh, then, of course, I moved abroad. So I spent, uh, in total, I spent three years in the Netherlands, um, uh, working also closely with uh, the football communities, national teams, and so forth uh, there. Um, but also, probably most important for me is that... Um, I've been very always seeking outside and always being to events, going to visit clubs, making friends. Um, and, 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 and this is something that I've done now for, I would say, 10, 12 years, very actively. Um, and again, um, uh, punching a little bit uh, above my, my own weight, uh, trying to be a part of uh, groups and communities where probably I don't belong. Um, and, and, and being a little bit, um, as we sometimes would say, un-Norwegian, um, just uh, throw away re respect, or not respect, but throwing away the, the, the over-respect that you sometimes have for big names and big clubs and, and so forth, and just, just try to just put yourself in there, which has been, you know, incredibly difficult because, because I'm, like a lot of Norwegians, very you know shy and cautious, um, and and and, it, and it's not something that 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 comes natural to me. But it's just so incredibly important. And once you've gotten past some of these hurdles, it, it gets easier. And once you've gotten into some of these clubs, it gets easier the next time. Once you start to make some friends and you form really good, you know, enduring connections, then these things are 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 just very different. That's super interesting. I want to talk a bit about your research, but before we dive into the perception and scanning, I would just love to to highlight, you have a principle that you say that you love to look where no one else is looking. And I just wanted you to expand a bit on that principle, and then we can use that as a segue over to scanning and perception. Yeah, um, you call it a principle. Yeah, it's, it, it is somewhat of that. Um, I'm... I mean, I, 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 got, I get bored about pursuing those questions that everyone else pursues. So, so, so with my professional life, it's always been like that. If, if everyone goes to the left, you know, I'm, I get curious about what's to the right. Um, um, so, so with football, it's like that. With, with sports psychology, it's like that. Like I'm, I can't just do what everyone else is doing. So I, so I feel so, it's, so there's something in that kind of defying the crowd that that uh, motivates me, inspires me. Um, so so with my work, it's been a lot like that. That um, when there's a certain paradigm in my field that you know 
at, at some point at my university, everyone was doing motivation research. So of course, there's no way that I'm going to do motivation research. Everyone is doing questionnaire research. Obviously, I'm not going to do questionnaire research. Everyone is doing this type of this. This is like the standard approach to to doing, for example, sports psychology consulting. So I'm going to do that a bit bit differently. Um, now, so there's a part of that to kind of define the the norm, if you want. Uh, but of course, it's also about finding the most pragmatic solutions to something, the the most effective ways to solve a problem. So, so really, with my research, that's that's what it is. I mean, I'm I, I still kind of feel that I'm I'm not really a researcher, which is silly, of course, because you know I picked up all the degrees that you can imagine. I I have a lot of publications now. Not I don't have a lot, but I have, I have publications. Uh, but I, I feel like I'm a practitioner that that pursues practical questions, but to to get good answers to these questions and to be able to give good advice, I need to actually get some real answers. And to get those real answers, you you know you do research. So all my research has really been driven by practical questions that I need answers to, uh, and and then um, yeah, then then a lot of knowledge is also accumulated. What's the story about the scanning piece that you have become very well known for where did it initially start did it start with observing a game or did it start in in the research lab or how did that idea spark your mind yeah so that's a combination of things because uh, even when i played i i knew about this topic um and, and it's, it's not it's not a brand new topic either it's something that coaches know about it's i mean in, in the old uh, uh, coach education books in Norway. There's there's something uh, about the what they call in Norwegian the hovmesterblick, which I guess would be like the the head waiter vision, the head waiter at a restaurant who has complete overview of what's going on at every single table when there comes new guests in. You know who needs what at what time and so forth. So, so even as a player, I knew about this, but this was something that belonged kind of in the coaching world. When I got into psychology, sports psychology, you know, there was nothing about this. Um, again, it was very theory-driven. It was very questionnaire-driven. And you can't really test these things with a questionnaire. So, so when I was doing my studies and I, and I, needed, to, I needed something to focus on, uh, and I knew that I wanted to do something in the concentration, attention, perception uh, 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 sphere, um, then I combined these two. And basically started looking at what players on on the field are doing in games. So at at first, again, because no one had done this before, you know, you needed you needed to experiment with. So how do you do this? You you film players, you film them close up. Um, and you know, at, at in the beginning of this, this was back in the day where we had the VHS cameras, you know, these massive machines that you had to get help to carry. Um, so we film players close up. Uh, I, I got a lot of my students to join me on this. So we had, you know, it looked ridiculous. We had like six, seven cameras at one game standing side by side and people were wondering what we're doing. But we needed this many cameras because we focused on each player. And focusing on each player gave us then the chance to look at, like you say, scanning. So the, so the, the, the way that players are basically very simply looking around themselves before they get the ball. Because you can see a lot of this. And the reason that there hasn't been that much focus on these things before is that 
to actually to really observe this, you need to look at players when they don't have the ball. But most people look at the football game and they either look at the ball and the player on the ball, they look, or they look at kind of patterns of, of players. But individuals, when they don't have the ball, have never been that interesting. And then, of course, that's something that I was... Can, can we use some players as example? I mean, you, you used so many players at different times, but just to to make people who are listening or watching an understanding of what you're looking for and which players typically are highlighted in these types of surveys or studies. Yeah, so so historically, um, the, the the first uh, the first player actually that I that I filmed myself uh, uh, with with this was Frank Lambert when he played for Chelsea. Um, so basically, what I did then was I, I focused on my. I had my camera to to a game at Stamford Bridge, you know, smuggled in because I wasn't sure if they were so happy with these video cameras, although they were smaller uh, than than they used to be. Uh, and then I followed Frank Lambert for ninety minutes, only looking at him. So then, what you see with him is, you know, he was amazing at this back in the Premier League uh, uh, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, there was no one like him. So his so he would have a scanning frequency across many of these games that we filmed uh, uh, of 0.6 scans per second. And because we measured this in the last 10 seconds before you get the ball, that's six scans in the last 10 seconds before you get the ball. And we see that some of the best players now, also they, they're, they're up there. Uh, so typically central midfield players, and you can, I mean, you can pick any and the central midfielder, uh, they, they will they will have a scanning frequency that's typically between 0 0.4 or 0 0.7. Some of the top players in the game now, that's yeah. Look at uh, look at Gundogan in Manchester City. He's he's up there at the almost 0 0.7. Look at a more offensive player like Kevin De Bruyne. He's also up there at 0 0.6. So these players have this immense ability to look away from the ball prior to receiving the ball to collect information that they can use when they when they get the ball that's fascinating but i think it's also important to remember that there is a big difference between scanning a lot and scanning at the right time you have this example i think it's in head and fan i think you compare uh, martin Odegaard to another player just to showcase that it, it is a difference between scanning at the right time versus just scanning for the sake of scanning can you just quickly also tell us about that difference yeah so 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 scanning is is really just uh moving your visual system so that you can see better but if a player scans it doesn't mean that they're picking up information it doesn't mean that they're using information so scanning is really just the entry point picking up information and with respect to timing um the principle here is that you want your eyes to be exposed to the most important information at any point in time and this changes of course what's the most important information at one point can be different at another point um, and most players tend to uh, look at the ball for the majority of, of a game because often the ball represents the most important information now in our research we've kind of discovered that that is true when a player touches the ball because when the ball is being touched by a player, then the ball will typically, you know, change direction, change speed. It will stop. It will be passed, and so forth. So that particular moment when the ball is touched, it's incredibly important to look at the ball. But that also means that in between those moments, so when the ball is being in between touches, when a player has the ball, or when the ball is heading from player A to player B, 
this is the time where you don't really need to look at the ball because there's nothing interesting, nothing new happening with the ball. So at that point, look away from the ball. And if you look at top players, and they're probably not aware of this, they're like a clock. You know, they're, it's, it's like a metronome. Like they look at the ball when the ball is being touched and they look away from the ball between touch, back to the ball when it's touched, away from the ball between touches. And so the example that you're referring to is, is, is a game with, with head and fan where, where you see a head and fan player is, is having the wrong timing. So he looks away from the ball uh, when the ball is being touched um, and he ends up missing a pass that is hit to him because he doesn't see the beginning part of the, of the pass. Whereas at the same time, in the same situation, you have a young Martin Odegaard who has perfect timing. So in the same situation, the same frequency, but very different timing. And this is something you see with, with most top players, really. How do you improve this? Uh, how much is raw ability and just that it's something that you're not even conscious about, you just do it naturally versus you have a player at 18 years old or 20 years old and you show him this data and you expect him to improve based on that data? Um, it's a good question, and it obviously should serve a complex <laughs> answer because these, these are very complicated processes. Um, uh, it's, we're used to thinking about these processes as, as very innate and, and not very trainable, teachable, and so forth. Now, the, the scanning bit of it um, is, is, is a simple behavior. It's, it's just a behavior. It's something that you do. Um, um, and, and to put it one step further, it's, it's really a habit, something that you typically do or typically don't do. So if you can ingrain that habit and start doing this behavior, do this, this action at, at an early age, you're likely to well cultivate this habit and make that something that you always do. And you'll, you'll likely also to have a benefit. So what we see is, um, one, is that when we try to train players at this, Training scanning, improving scanning, uh, you, can, you can double the frequency of scanning is something that is quite easy to do within a relatively short time. Um, now, what takes time is to get the visual system to pick up that information that you get from scanning and to actually use it and convert it into actions. That will take more time. And it's difficult for players too because suddenly then you're getting much more information. If you double your scanning, you could say that you get twice the, the amount of information in. Uh, so some players, a lot of players, in fact, they quit doing this because suddenly football became more complicated and more difficult because they have so much information to deal with. Whereas the smart players or the ones who are in smart environments, of course, they start doing this early um, so that their whole system is used to taking in information. And we see that a lot of the players who are really good at this when they were interviewed about it and so forth. They will speak about that. They got an experience or they were told at a very early age, that it's smart to look away from the ball. It's smart to prepare for what's gonna happen when you get the ball. And when they get their visual system accustomed to this from an early age, they have a large benefit going forward as a football player. Makes sense. Let's dive into another topic that I know that you're passionate about. If you look at penalties, you have been doing large data sets of that. Can you just take us to the penalty shootout with England this year and explain the data set you have you had going into that tournament and also explain what happened at the penalty shootout? <laughs> yeah, so I, I can probably speak about England for a few hours um, and penalties. 
Um, and, and of course, I have to start by saying that again, I mean, coming from Norway, <laughs> there's something really wrong about talking about other countries' penalties because, uh, well, at least with our men's team, we, we never get to penalty shootouts. We never even get to tournaments. So we never get to take part in, you know, where this could be a case. But with England, they have, of course, a very complicated history with, with penalties and with a large period of time, uh, well, decades, where they they wouldn't win anything when it comes to penalties. They would have great teams, get foreign tournaments, but then they're kicked out on penalties. Um, and then Southgate and his team um, did really decided that we're going to do something about this uh, ahead of the 2018 World Cup. So they they had a team of, I think, three or four people uh, that worked for five or six months, exclusively dedicated to how can we solve this penalty puzzle for, for England. So they collected all the research they could get their hands on. They spoke to researchers. They had meetings with psychologists, with referees. They had workshops with staff. They had workshops with players. You know, every, anything that they could control in this event, they controlled. Um, went into a penalty shootout against Colombia in the World Cup. Uh, they win. Uh, I'm looking at this and I'm like, it ticks all the boxes of things that you want the team to do. It's a, it's a great display. Uh, and you kind of think, okay, so maybe this, this penalty issue has now been resolved for England. Now, fast forward three years, um, we get to a shootout again. And in, in, in the final this uh, of the Euros this summer, um, um, and I haven't been involved in any way with them. Uh, I, I was uh, consulted three years back, so I spoke with them then, but I have not, uh, you know, uh, heard anything uh, uh, now since then. Um, and I'm looking at what happens, and and I see uh, an England team that or management that, that follows some of the principles involved um, in, in uh, or, or some of the things that we find from research they seem to follow, but they don't apply it in the comprehensive uh, way that I would advise. They don't use this into, um, they, don't, they don't put, um, they don't manage risk as you should going into this, this, this type of event, for example. Um, we find in our research that there's nothing wrong with putting young players into a penalty shootout. And there's nothing wrong with putting substitutes into take a penalty in a penalty shootout. In fact, both young players and substitutes statistically or historically score a little bit more than older players and non-substitutes, the ones that have played 120 minutes before they take, take shots. So then, you know, you, it, it would be fine then to put um, uh, Saka and Sancho and, and Rashford to take penalties, who, of, of course, famously missed in, in this shootout. Now, the problem is, how do you apply this type of knowledge? Uh, and if you look at these three players, these were players who were not regulars in the, in the tournament. They didn't play that much. So that's first of all. Um, when you get to a shootout, you, you want players who have um, confidence, of course, who have a certain a good feeling that, that, they, that they feel a part of the squad, a part of the group. Now, they may very well, of course, feel those things, but, but we know that they did not get a chance to really play themselves warm into this tournament. And what's worse is that 
two of these players as we know were substituted on right before the end uh, of extra time um, and then you have two players who have not played in the tournament so basically their team took them to the final and now it's up to the two of them to make sure that the rest of the team gets their reward of winning this this game and also what's worse is that the rest of the team took them to the 120th minute and the penalty shootout. And now it's up to those two that the rest of the team gets the reward uh, uh, in, in this event. And that's adding a lot of pressure onto players that also are, are young. Um, and this combined, I think, um, uh, it, 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 it's not how this data that we have going into this would 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 prescribe that you would do and and, it, and it's an example of how you need to look at a little bit more um the holistic part of this event to 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 assess risk before before you make decisions about it that's super interesting i mean it just also shows that you can use good data in a bad way and vice versa right so it's very complicated that you can sort of understand something but you can also misuse that understanding uh if we look at young players having setbacks you have been quoted that when it comes to setbacks it's not a point trying to avoid setbacks missing a penalty having a hard time or hard spell at the club it's more it's just how do you cope with it in a general sense you've worked with some very good players we, we don't have to mention them but how do people generally uh go through setbacks in a good way. Yeah. So, so with setbacks, um, um, I mean, with football players, as as in life, you know, you, you're going to get setbacks. You're going to get difficult periods. You're going to get for for these players. There there will be stretches of time where you don't play. You will encounter injuries. You will you will experience things in your private life um, that you have to handle at the same time that you're performing in front of thousands and millions watching on TV so with, with all the pressure that, that comes with that. So, so, so the principle involved here is that this that is normal. That is something that will happen. Um, there's no need to be surprised when it happens. Um, and also when you're in this situation, it's, it's really all about so how can, can you um, exploit this situation to the fullest now I'm in a situation where I'm not going to be, you know, 100% pleased with what's happening. I'm not going to have the 100% of my capability that I that I now can use because I have a something that weighs on me, something painful, maybe a little injury or something. Uh, but what you can always, always control, <clears throat> and, and this is very classical, you know, cognitive psychology, you can always control your response to these situations. Uh, you have 100% control of that. Uh, and that needs to be your focus at any point in time. Can I get 100% out of this 70% situation that I'm in? Because then at least you end, end up with 70% and you don't make a bad situation worse by digging yourself down, starting to spiral, starting to stress because you're stressed, because you're in pain, because you're not happy. Um, so, so this is really about how you <clears throat> actively take control over the situation by how you approach it. Uh, with, a, with a positive mindset. If we look at what it takes to succeed at the very highest level, you have talked about two components that you see in football players at the very top, that it, all, it also is related to business or entrepreneurship or whatever. And 
those two components are uh, the importance of play, almost like this childish behavior of you're doing the thing you love the most in the world, paired with that willingness and desire to win at all costs almost when it's the right time to put on that mindset. Can you talk about those two components and how they pair up with each other? Sure. Now, that, that's also a, a quite complex uh, question, um, or at least one that requires a complex answer. Um, and, and, and I think it's, it's interesting, the, the intersection of those kind of two processes. So, so on one end, the, like you say, the, the play or the ability to be absorbed in the moment, enjoy what you do, um, have passion for what you do, just, just feeling alive when you do this particular activity on one end. And then on the other hand, there's, a, there's an ambition there's a there's a desire to accomplish something. There's a there's a need to to be the best at something, to win, to qualify to a tournament, to play on a good team, um, to accomplish uh, great great things. Um, and <clears throat> I mean, sometimes these are very two distinct processes. Uh, and we could say, for example, that uh, in a developmental perspective, um, you want to start with the former, which is the play, the passion for being in this activity and so forth, because that type of intrinsic motivation is the most stable motivation that you that you can find. Um, if you at an early age is too focused on the other part of it, men, meaning the accomplishing something, winning and so forth, um, then your motivation is, is less stable <clears throat> because it will only really be sustained if, if you do win, if you do well. Uh, and if you have moments where, where things aren't going so well, then, then that's not going to be a, a, a very adaptive mindset. But what we see is, of course, that a lot of these top, top performers, they, over the stretch of time, probably they, they cultivate this mindset where they have the combination of these two, where they just love being in, in this activity, but they also love striving for the wins, doing whatever it takes. Um, and they can even learn to appreciate, you know, that really tough, hard work that you need to, to, to do to get to get all this to matter. Um, the one that requires a lot of willpower and self-discipline where you're able to deal with pain and discomfort now because you want to harvest some type of reward in the, in, the, in the future. This is something actually that I've kind of been surprised that when I've spoken with some of the really top performers in this game, um, when I've sometimes, you know, put up these two types of motivations as opposite and they look at this and they're like, no, 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 this is not opposite. You know, it's, it, it, it's the hard work. It's the hard dedication every day to the to the little details that makes me better in training that's the part that's fun that's the part that i love that's what i have passion for so they kind of arrest me on, on some of my faulty assumptions on this so that has led me really to to, to look at this as it's more of a combination that of course comes across in in different ways for for, for different people and and, and in different uh, activities and, and industries fascinating uh I mean, there, there's no secret that you have been doing some research with or involving Arsenal Football Club, and I think you have you have you have said that there's one quote by um, Arsene Wenger. It's a very public quote at a conference where he says something like, "Happiness is not paired with top performers. 
and maybe he's taking it a bit too far. But can you just explain that rationale? Why does he say that? Why does he believe that happiness isn't necessarily linked with the top player? Yeah, so I'm not sure if I'm an authority on Arsene Wenger. <laughs> let me let me start by saying that. Um, but with that said, uh, 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 there was certainly a collaboration uh, a few years ago at at, at Arsenal Football Club, um, and 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 also I'm I am fascinated with with the man, his philosophy, uh, what he has achieved, uh, and and so forth. Um, and I've also seen some of those quotes. Um, where where he's he's saying that you know the the comfort zone is the biggest enemy of 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 performance in in top sport and top athletes um, are dissatisfied individuals they're not happy in individuals um, now um, sometimes when I when I when I when I see these quotes I'm I'm suspecting that that Arsene Wenger is really talking at, about himself um and and that he has this type of mindset towards what he has achieved which is this this really extremely disciplined person that, that of course he has disclosed in his his uh, autobiographies and and so forth um that just goes to, to this really painstaking lengths to 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 do the right things to get the work done and, and to make his his teams win um, so, I, so I think there's uh, there's something to that, but I've also seen seen him talk about uh, in, in other interviews where that 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 you have a certain personality that is in this direction, that is the very ascetic uh, kind of uh, high willpower personality that will will do what it takes in in the day to get results in the long run. But there are also that there are we call it the lighter type of person. That that is is floating a little bit more around. It's a little bit more playful. It's a little bit more harmonious. A little bit more holistic in lifestyle and so forth. And that this personality can also achieve great things in football as 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 in, as in life. Do you think there's a, a distinction or difference between managers versus top players? That some mentalities, because you see some players do exceptionally well as managers. You see some managers who aren't top players become managers on the on the very top do you have any suspicions or have you done any research to look just look at managers and not football players necessarily yeah. um so personally i haven't done the research on managers um uh but 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 i've been around a few uh and and so 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 of course i have some speculations about some of these things um now in one way i think it's it's a lot of the same processes that are necessary to become a top player and a top manager because what they have in common is, of course, the context of the elite football, which is, if you think of it, you know, how, how many hundred millions are trying to be good at this? This is an extremely competitive industry, uh, which I think it ma makes it fascinating uh, to, for, for just to study human performance because if there are 300 millions who are, waking up every day trying to thinking about how good they want to become at football uh, and you study the top you know 50 individuals in this sport you know that these people have something very special about them that that made them successful so and players did this and managers also did this they they all at least you know players and managers at the highest level they were all able to 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 get this far uh, with a combination of skills uh, mentality, uh, 
routine structure and so forth and so forth. So, so I think that uh, just as a study of human performance, I think both are, are incredibly interesting. Now, what managers also need to do is obviously managing. So they're managing people, um, they're leaders in a different way. Um, uh, and that, of course, requires a, a whole different skill set. And one thing that I've really been struck by over and over again um, when I've had the fortune to meet some of these, you know, global superstar managers is that they're just incredibly good with people. They're just so amazing in their ability to communicate, to form relationships. Uh, I mean, um, at least, you know, the ones that I've met, so many of them make, make, make you feel like you are, you know, an incredibly important person for them when you've just literally just met them and you spend five minutes in their presence. Um, and, and this ability, I think, is something that um, they are able to uh, convert into successful teams and successful performances with their teams. Perfect ending. Gate, thank you so much for taking the time to join. Over the last years, we have tried to give our community the best possible content on business, investing, and entrepreneurship. If you have enjoyed this free content over time and find it valuable, it would be amazing if you want to support us by making a small donation in our Patreon. Just click the link in the description to have a look. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel.